Welcome to Boiling Point, the podcast to motivate ever-evolving entrepreneurs and forward-thinking movement pioneers. Our hosts, filmmaker Greg Hemmings and executive coach Dave Vale, are turning up the heat in the world's business communities. Our interviews with entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers are raising the temperature of inspiration. Live from the hottest studio in this quadrant of the universe, here are Dave and Greg. Hey, Boiling Pointers. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode. Before we start, Dave and I want to let you know all about our Boiling Point process, online courses, live events, and masterminds. After interviewing hundreds of leaders, we've packaged a ton of knowledge together to serve up to you. Info that will help you and your company be heard in a very noisy marketplace. So visit www.boilingpointprocess.com and sign up for the email newsletter and we'll let you know when our next cohort or event is. Thanks also for supporting The Boiling Point by subscribing to us on iTunes and also leaving a rating for us. Dave, welcome back. I'm going to keep on jumping in saying welcome back I know to you. you always, until you why do you always me welcome it. me back? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, why, don't, why, why don't we... Uh, we got to play with that. our opening. In. You're, but you, you get it going. Okay, it's how great. Okay, Boiling Point podcast uh, fans, welcome back to the show. Or we could just go, show. bam, and we're live, <laughs> like Joe Rogan does. So one of the things, Dave, that I love about doing this podcast over every single week for the last five years is all the incredible people that we meet that then introduce us to other incredible people. So the guest that we've got coming on um, was a... Uh, introduction from our friend Dorothea, who was on, I don't know how long ago now, maybe, maybe a couple 12, ago. 13 episodes ago. Yeah. And uh, Dorothea hooked us up with a bunch of really awesome guests, including today's amazing guest, Elisa. So Elisa, welcome to the Volume Point podcast, finally. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, fantastic. Now, wh- why don't you, first of all, let us know where you're calling in from here. I am calling in from my home office in beautiful San Jose, California. Fantastic. Fantastic. Completely on the other side of the the continent from us. So, Alyssa, let's jump right into it. Why don't don't you start with uh, introducing yourself and uh, also how you're showing up in the world here? Yeah. So, I am uh, probably most recognized as being the co-founder and COO of a company called BlogHer that I founded with two other women in 2005. We grew it to be the largest women's media outlet on the internet. And our mission was to create opportunities for women online who were creating content and writing and, and building their own communities. And we ran the company for nine years before we did sell it. And then I stayed for another almost three years with the acquiring company. And then I left to write a book, my first ever book, which in a total turn of events was not about business or entrepreneurism or women online. It was about being an activist, an everyday activist who can make a difference in your community. So I did that. And then I was consulting while I tried to figure out what I wanted to be when I grow up uh, again. And so just two months ago, I took a new job. I'm a CEO of another startup called Cygnus, which is just getting started developing a data platform for nonprofits and political campaigns and corporate social responsibility initiatives. Man, there's so much for us to talk about here (laughs) in a very short period of time. So a few things that... um, resonate with me quickly are uh, your community building piece 
which is really exciting because uh, Dave and I have been developing our own community and our own curriculum, if you will, for our listeners to be able to be heard in a noisy marketplace. Podcasting is one of those ways, one of, one of many ways. And uh, um, our fourth step in, in, in the process that we've developed is uh, speaking to and building your community. Mm-hmm. So um, I think we both get excited when we, when we talk to other experts like yourself who's built such a significant community with the with blogger and um let's talk about that like you started you started from zero and then built it to to the largest on the internet at the time that's that's pretty cool so walk step us through that process when we got started we actually did we started as a conference which most people don't know they think we started as our internet presence but we uh, lisa stone and joy desjardins and i um, we met through blogging through and through introductions. So we weren't previously friends or colleagues, which I think was actually interesting because it meant we had no baggage when we started a company together. Nice. We were Our Great friendship job. was forged in building this company. But the first thing we did was put on a conference and it was really born out of putting on, putting on something we wanted to attend that didn't exist. And I think so many great businesses and so many great events and so many great ideas are really about people filling in the gaps uh, for themselves, because then you are your best customer. You know what you want. And if you want it, you're probably not unlike many other people. So so we did the first conference. We were not, um, at the time, all three of us were blogging and all three of us were consulting with organizations that wanted to blog, but we were not in the upper echelon of like famous bloggers. There weren't that many famous bloggers back in 2005. Uh, But we weren't them. But what we did was we first built an advisory board of the women who were the really prominent women bloggers. Nice. I mean, there is a value to being first with an idea and early because they weren't inundated with requests like that. So they're like, sure, we'll help. That's that's exciting. And then um, as we grew, we involved people from our community organically in every aspect of growing our first web designer, our first editor editors, our first event manager, our first, you know, as we hired, as we grew the company, they were people who a lot of them came from within the community. So they not only brought their business skills, whatever it was, but they brought an innate sense of what that community was about. And, you know, when you're building a community like this, everybody's got their day job, right? Everybody's got their other things they're good at and figuring out how to work together but coming from the same place of loving the community is is like that proverbial win-win. I think that is so inspiring, especially at that magical part of that decade where being first in was, you could make massive, uh, you know, impact. Now, if we fast forward much later, <laughs> which was only five, six years ago, I went to uh, New Media Expo on the first year. It was called NMX. I think it was Blogger World before that. It was really focused heavily on podcasting at NMX that year in Vegas. And it was at that point, and that we're only talking six years ago, maybe. Uh, I can't remember how long ago it was. But I remember um, the the top podcast. This is before Joe Rogan got into it and all, and Tim Ferriss and all that. But uh, the top podcasters were all there. And they were, like you're saying, just, just approachable. They're people because they were first in. And I remember <laughs> coming back to Dave right here and saying, we got to do a podcast. And what did you say, Dave? I said, what's a podcast? That, that was only <laughs> I, six I had years no ago. idea. Yeah, I thought it was like video. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Lisa, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say podcasts. When we started Blocker in 05, podcasts were 
also at a similar stage of blogging and they were kind of being done, but it faded. Like people, I think were a little more daunted that it wasn't as easy. There weren't the tools available. So mm. it was a lot more DIY. I mean, even early blogging, you had to learn HTML, you had to know code. Hmm. Um, and I, and that, I always said that blogging was a gateway to, uh, you know, a gateway drug to other tech skills because you had to know code. Um, now, you know, podcasting came up with this huge resurgence. Um, and I, I'll tell you, you mentioned Tim Ferriss, and I'll tell you a little anecdote about him because in, in I think it typifies what I'm saying about building community. In 2007, so South by Southwest invited BlogHer to do a track of programming at South by Southwest in 2006. Nice. So we had only been around a year. South by Southwest was still only 3,000 people. <laughs> and we did a track of like six panels with all women speakers and effectively doubled their number of women speakers. And we did a meetup. And then the next year, 07, so we're talking 12 years ago, we did a meetup again. And it was, you know, 99% women. And then this one young, scrappy guy who had just heard about this and thought what he was talking about would be interesting to the women in our community. And he just thought he would come and hang out and meet us and meet our community. And this was Tim Ferriss before he ever published his first book, before he ever, you know, I, I don't even, I don't know how old he is. So, you know, I, of course, thought of my, you know, thought of him as this young, scrappy, like uh, pipsqueak almost, you know, and um <laughs> But I thought it was so smart because he was like, let me go find where there are vibrant communities and let me see if I, there's a place for me in these vibrant communities in order to build my community and have relationships and build connections. And I think it very much typified what that early digital age was like the, you know, I was an internet utopian. I thought the internet was like going to save, save society and save the world. It, didn't quite turn out that way, but some yet, some parts yet. of the internet still do that. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. I, I, if it's okay, I'd like to shift gears a little bit. And um, one of the things I read in your bio, or what, one of the topics you presented, is this idea of like the entrepreneur's journey. And you're talking to two entrepreneurs, and and you said especially as a woman. Um, and you're talking to two male entrepreneurs, and I, I'd love to to just dig into that. I want to un- understand, and then and then I there's a I have some follow up stuff to that. But but how would the um, journey uh, as a female entrepreneur like help us understand because we're not women, right? So I think the main thing to realize is that we all as humans build networks that look quite a bit like us. Um, that's true for men and women. That's true for all of us. And we all as humans do what's called pattern matching in that we, when you look like somebody who I've had successful relationships with, you know, I assume I go in with an expectation or just a gut implicit kind of subconscious. I know how this is going to go. When we raised our first round of venture capital in 2007, less than 2% of the companies that got venture funding were led by an all-female team. We are here now, 12 years later, and it's still about 2%. Really? So you're talking about um, a pattern matching that just doesn't exist. And the number is just even in, you know, infinitely smaller for women of color. So you're, you're talking about you're missing this kind of subconscious, implicit, I know how this is going to go. I've, I've had success with people that look just like this. Now, 
we were pretty strategic about how we raised our money and we really leveraged, we're all three of us from Silicon Valley. So we really leveraged relationships. We didn't have a ton of conversations, but all the conversations we had were with people we either knew or knew someone really close to. Um, So we had that going for us. And I often say, I didn't think we found it that hard to raise money, but I think we got the woman discount on our valuation. Um, Because I think if we had been like dudes in hoodies, presenting the same idea, they would have thought those guys were geniuses. And how did that ever happen? How did the hoodie thing <laughs> happen? And you know, when, you, when you watch um, Silicon Valley on HBO, it's like, it's such a hilarious stereotype, but it's true. But how it's did come that Mark Zuckerberg. suit? <laughs> it's, it's all Zuckerberg. But okay. he did, refused, like for years, he wouldn't wear anything but his like jeans and a hoodie. Um, so I think that's what, but I always say, to women who are in this space, I'm always like, forget what would Jesus do? What would a white man in a hoodie do? That's your inspiration. <laughs> okay, put that on a necklace as an acronym. It's a little, yeah. it's a bit of a mouthful. So, okay, just but, to review but, what you just said there. Yeah, um, let's go here. Connecting, like, um, like the, the mostly male investment community is making these, uh, you know, unconscious biases and these implicit understandings that, oh, a group of female entrepreneurs, clearly we're going to be able to uh, put it out of valuation. It's more advantageous for us and the pushback's not going to happen. I don't know if it's that they think you won't push back. It's that I do think they inherently value it less because we were women doing womany things. Yeah. I, I also think we might have gotten better valuations if we were women doing something ungendered. Um, but back then, I think there has been some growth in understanding about the size and power of the women's market. And I like to give credit to companies like consumer companies got the power of the woman influencer, the woman online, the woman consumer who is also building community online. They got it way before the media, way before investors, way before politicians and government. Like they were like, this is where our bread is buttered. And so they, they are what gave us a company really because they wanted to reach our audience and they knew our audience was important. It was later that like presidential candidates showed up, you know? How So you, you, you talk about being that, you know, part of that very small percentage of companies, all women led that were invested in, like, how did you break through? Like, what was it that made this different? Um, Cause clearly I mean, well, no, I guess we're talking to you how many ever years later, but you're articulate, smart. I mean, I'm just listening to you and I'm thinking, well, who wouldn't invest in Elisa? Like it, but, you know, maybe this is, this is the new version of you. I don't know. I, I hope that's true because I'm going to be fundraising again pretty soon for this new company <laughs> I'm running. So All right, let us know. <laughs> um, but I think back then, well, we were smart and we were, we did tell our story. But the other thing is we bootstrapped for two years before we decided finally to go get funding. So we had two years of revenue, even though the first year was really small and we kind of made money by accident on that first event. But we had um, we had 150 bloggers in our network and we were reaching a million uniques. And we had done a second conference by that point. And we, you know, had, um, I think if I remember correctly, our first year when we just did the conference, we made $50,000. And then the next year we made $500,000. And then we had projections that were based on growth patterns of how easy it was for us to onboard more bloggers and get bigger reach. We also had pent up demand. So at only a million uniques, we had customers telling us, I can't really give you my big RFPs. I can only give you my small things. You get up to 10 million, 
I can give you my big RFPs. You can make big money. And so we wanted the money. I always say this to people. People don't give you money to keep doing what you're doing, but be less tired. They give you money because what are you going to do next? And what are you going to do that's going to exponentially grow your business? What we were going to do was hire salespeople and hire people to onboard more bloggers so that we could manage and grow to that 10 million uniques and then 20 million uniques and on and on. And we knew we had the customers saying, we want you to do this. We need you to do this because our, our hands are tied a little bit. So I think it was, we had a track record. We had proven we could run a sustainable business. We had pent up demand to grow the business. And I think that's what sort of gave it a comfort level. And on top of that, I think we were mining a new market Mm. that nobody else was raising money to mine in that moment when we were raising our first round. So so at the end of the day, the investment really had, you know, like it was the fact that you were, it was all women led really was irrelevant. Yeah, I'm, I'm saying I, yeah, I don't think we had that hard a time raising the money itself. So, I just think women are devalued a little bit. And what, the, what they attached to it from a value uh, uh, point of view was lower than I think it should have I, been. And I'm just, I was just interested as the comparison because, I'll you know, when they the, came along, they also had a highly, you know, their market was, their audience was predominantly women. They didn't have a business model yet. They didn't have bigger reach than us. They didn't have more revenue than us. They didn't have anything more than us at the time, you know, uh, but they immediately got bigger valuations than us. And I'm not saying they didn't do things later to grow astronomically, you know? Um, So I'm not saying it wasn't worth it. Maybe I am not commenting on that. I'm just saying it was interesting to see what was attached to that because a guy was walking in talking about this great business opportunity. Okay. I, you know, I also think that we walked in and we were pretty earnest and we were pretty much mission oriented and opportunity oriented. And I'm just a huge believer in that, that you can do business and do good, that you can have a mission and make money. People would ask us, Oh, are you guys nonprofit? Because we were women. I'd be like, Oh no, you know, I have a mortgage to pay. I want to make more profit, you know? But I wasn't willing to give up the idea of a mission and that that was valuable to us. And it is not at all valuable to investors that you have a mission. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting you say that too, because we've been focusing a lot uh, on this podcast for the last five years with big uh, focus on the B Corp community, the social venture network community. Um, So very much like we're in the bubble of, and I'm over the last five years, I've been seeing a beautiful growth in the impact investment space where it's not big enough yet, uh, but we are starting to see investors and investment groups who are looking for money, bottom line, but doing it in the triple bottom line spirit. And so that's, that is exciting that we're seeing that shift. Now, I have to be careful to remember that I'm in a bubble. <laughs> so that's, no, that's exactly where I plan to go I, in my next, with this company, because it is focused on helping nonprofits and helping political candidates and helping CSR initiatives. I'm looking for impact investors. That's where I will be going to. And it is exciting. And there is more of it than there ever was. And yes, they want to make money, but they want to make money in a way that they think holds up values they care about. And I'm yeah. all about that. Just, well, maybe I, I, we oh, sorry, well, I was just going to say, but it's it's wonderful that those aren't two separate ideas. I have a mission or right. I want to be profitable. And that's what I'm hearing. And it's like, thank God for that. Because to make money for money's sake is, you know, obviously it leaves you feeling, I would guess, relatively deflated. And I've, because I've never tried to make money that way. Yeah. Well, I did. I mean, and I wouldn't say 
before I started blog her, I was in more traditional high tech. I worked for corporate tech, you know, big companies here in Silicon Valley. And I was running product management for teams making hardware products, actually. And, um, you know, I was making all this money, but I was usually too busy and stressed out to spend it. And, <laughs> and, um, and I would make these occasional misery purchases where I'd be like, why am I making all this money if I never do anything with it? So I'm going to just buy this frivolous thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think that that burnt me out. I don't know how it doesn't burn most people out. Um, especially if I, you know, I wasn't at that point an executive, I was, you know, sort of underneath that layer. And when you see a company being run with values, you don't agree with, mm-hmm. even if I liked my team, I liked my job, but it didn't necessarily like what was happening above me. Mm-hmm. And, um, I don't know if you can just, I mean, some people do obviously do that kind of their whole career, but it just was not for me. You know, what's so interesting. So I'm a, I have a coaching company. We do a lot of executive coaching and the number of people, clients that we would run across in their fifties, you know, late fifties, maybe early sixties who are just um, recognizing they gave a career and a focus on trying to make money and, and feeling, um, what can I do now to be to contribute to do something different? And I just it, it seems like it's there's this theme, you know what I mean? And then and I, I don't know if it's a generational thing, but I, I don't think that's an uncommon thing. And I just feel like, man, what, can you imagine putting you know decades in and looking back and and not feeling proud of it? Well, yeah, and, and it's not always that you don't feel proud of what you accomplish. It's just is that all there is, or fulfilled by it? Maybe maybe not proud's work, but there's something missing. Something missing. And I see it with almost every woman I know who hits 45, accomplished women, women who other women would be like, oh, you're my role model. If you're not happy, like with what you've done, what does that mean for me? But it is this question of, is this, is this it? Is this going to be what I have accomplished? Will, you know, is this what I want my legacy to be? Could I be doing more? And I, I just call it, you know, this kind of regular existential crisis that I have and everyone I know has. And um, <laughs> and I think it for women, um, I think it may happen a little earlier than it does for men because, and this fight, I'm sure you may not have talked about this on your podcast before, but for a lot of women, once you get past 40, there's this whole thing nobody ever tells you about. You've all heard the word menopause. And you probably know what that means. There's this whole period of years where your body is going wackadoodle. And for, <laughs> for me, it's been five years. Shit is happening. And no one warned you. And um, for me, one of the symptoms I had was I was so depleted. I had a bunch of vitamin deficiencies that didn't take, didn't get diagnosed for like two years. And I was always just so tired by three o'clock. I, and I, and so I had to get much more focused about what am I going to work on because my energy level Hmm. is reduced and I don't know why. Hmm. And so everything I do has to be pretty well considered because I can't just run 16 hours a day anymore. I I can't do it. And, you know, eventually kind of went to the doctor, figured it out, feeling all better. But I think for women, their bodies start to tell them it's time to think about like how you're spending your energy. Is this what you want to be doing? And if you had to limit what you were doing, what, what would be the essentials for you? Thank you for sharing that because that, that's and you're right. No one's talked about that in this podcast, so there's a first. Um, 
And, and I'm just imagining if that man went through that, it would be like this rite of passage and there would be celebration and there would be uh, accolades and there would be, you know, um, uh, you know, people commiserate with Dudes. you. And <laughs> um, here, here's, and I'm, I'm going to totally change again, but something I'm interested as an entrepreneur is your company raised four rounds. Uh, you, you went and you were acquired and then you stayed on for three years. Yeah, incredible. And what, I, what I'm curious about is if you were to do that again, would you do the same thing in terms of staying on? And I've, I've heard all sorts of different, people give different advice on that. I just, I'm be curious about your experience. So my experience was a little different than my two co-founders because I had what the hardest thing about M&A for the founders is that probably you're coming into a company that already has you, at least has someone in the role you have. You know, my partner who was the CEO, well, they had a CEO and that CEO is going to have, you know, CEOs will have differing levels of comfort with someone coming in who has that level of experience. And my partner who was the head of highest level business development and partnerships, well, they had both the chief revenue officer and a head of business development. So it's all about how do you like squeeze yourself in to a role um, that isn't stepping on anyone's toes. They they want you to stay at least for a while because they want you to bring your relationships. They want you to right. bring your communication with right. your employees and your customers. And in our case, our community. So I, I definitely had some parts of my job that I didn't have to do anymore. I didn't have to run PR anymore. I didn't have to run creative services and editorial. Like they had those departments, but I did two significant things that they really didn't have. And that were part of the reason they acquired us. One was the conference business. I just ran that line of business. And two was the online community, social community. You know, in other words, using social media to build community, not to drive traffic to editorial links. And they had that, they had editorial social media but they didn't really have community. And so for a long time, you know, I had my little, I guess I'll call it a fiefdom. Uh, I had, I had my little area. I wasn't really in conflict with existing leaders and, and I had a whole team and I kept my whole team because they didn't have that kind of team. So for a while it felt not that different and I kind of could do my thing. Did I stay too long? Yeah, probably because I think one of the difficulties was that I was here in my nice San Jose home office and all the other executives were in New York. And I just was left out of decision-making and conversations, not just about my own stuff, but I could have been contributing and I wanted to contribute at a higher level more strategically, but it was always kind of an afterthought. And that's, I think it's pretty natural to happen like that. Mm. And, and there was a part at first about being acquired that's kind of freeing in that, hey, the board meetings were not my problem anymore. Like I wasn't, you didn't, the, the biggest burden I think of running a company is that you're responsible for people's livelihoods. <laughs> you're responsible, all comes down to you. The buck mm. stops with you, even if there's three of us, you know, stops with us. Well, you know, we got acquired and it didn't really stop with us anymore. I had my own little PL, but I wasn't responsible for the whole enchilada. And that was kind of, <laughs> relaxing, you know, compared yeah. to what we've been doing. But it's also frustrating because it's not your baby anymore and you don't have the control or the power to just get things done. You don't have the input, you know. And so I think for a, lo for a long time, it worked fine. After a while, I was kind of protecting my team and being like the buffer and go-between and champion for a team of people I felt responsible for. 
And I probably did that longer than I should have. Yeah, um, that, I mean, that, that would be tough. Like, uh, I, that's the part, th- that last piece that I find particularly hard. Yeah, you know, yeah. Is so, losing especially control. Your, your family, right? Yeah. As, as, as you transfer through an m and And we have had a number of, uh, you know, f- friends and colleagues who have gone through similar experiences. And it's so interesting. They're all unique, but they all have that same, there's, there's an expiry date. So thank you for sharing that. And, you know, yeah. if you were kind enough to come back again on our podcast sometime down the road love to continue that part of the conversation but really focus on the new business um when you're ready to to talk about it there's a couple things i wanted to say too um i'm sure you're already familiar familiar with the social venture network but the um social venture network and investor circle just combined last year so it's, Mm. it's now called social venture circle there's a whole investment community of impact investors that are now uh, interlocked in the same family as as a bunch of entrepreneurs like us. I'm a member. It's an annual fee of something, and uh, uh, I think it's Berkeley this year is our is our gathering in November. You should just explore getting into that in in your new thing because yeah. I I know you're already well connected in the impact investment space, but it's really neat to see these loving investors. So like yeah. like we're talking not just impact investors, we're talking love based in impact investors heavy relationship based and anyway just a neat a neat place for you to explore i I always say to people forget about smart money there's no money that that's that's that smart you want passionate money passionate Mm. about you Mm. trusting you You don't want them passionate about your spreadsheet because things will change and go wrong versus the spreadsheet you want them to just believe in you and love you oh let's see that's a takeaway right there yeah that's a positive takeaway yeah um the other thing I just want to say, I want to close off without, uh, sorry, without forgetting to talk about your book. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so we need, we need people to check this out. So the uh, Roadmap for Revolutionaries. Um, let's, uh, let's talk about this uh, as, as your closer and, and let people know how people can reach out to you and get the book. Yes, definitely. So it's Roadmap for Revolutionaries, Resistance, Activism, and Advocacy for All. And it's really designed to help people who got super fired up after the 2016 election. I saw them all around me to focus their energies and feel like they're effective because I saw so many of my friends, first of all, operating at a level of intensity I couldn't see being sustainable. But second of all, having like 20 different things they were trying to do and feeling like they were doing none of them well. So we're like, pick your adventure, really triage, choose where you want to focus your efforts. And then here's a whole bunch of resources and ideas and stories and case studies about how to make a difference. And we don't, we hardly focus on Washington, D.C. because there's lots of resources about that. We're talking about getting to your local governance. What about making change at your workplace? What about making change at your kid's school? What about um, economic pressure and how to use your dollars most wisely? We even have a chapter, and this should interest you, on protecting yourself online and off. I think protecting your data in this environment is a radical act and we should all be doing more of it than we probably are, including myself. So we have a whole chapter about all the different ways you can actually be more stealthy and uh, behind a wall online. Oh my gosh. Um, which most people I know are not doing. Okay, we need we need you back. <laughs> Please okay. come back because that's, that's a whole other... It's a whole other thing. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, so it's just roadmapforevolutionaries.com. It's on Amazon. That's our website. You can find it, you know, everywhere and it's easy uh, and and it's pretty. It's like they made really nice graphics for it. So, and it's full of resources. Uh, Alisa, thank you so much. And how do people get in touch with you? 
So I am at elisacp.com, uh, Elisa C on Twitter, Elisa CP on Instagram. Uh, most of my posts on uh, Facebook are public. So you can find me online and LinkedIn. You can connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> awesome. Omnipresent. Elisa, thank you so much. Thanks, Elisa. Thank Have a good one. Thank you too. Take Bye. care. And now it's time for the Boiling Point Takeaways. Yet another awesome... Um, She's got wonderful energy. Holy cow. Oh my gosh, yeah. That was that was fantastic. Yeah, it, it is neat though. Like the referral... Something we're going to do more is ask our guests to suggest other other guests. Mm. You know, this was, this was excellent. And uh, mm-hmm. clearly the depth of knowledge and experience that Elisa's had is uh, is so robust. Like you, you could talk to someone like that for hours. Yeah. About, you know, exiting a company, yeah. about revolutions, about, you know, being a, a female entrepreneur. I like, um, the, I like the comment around passionate money. Yeah. I think that, that um, nailed it for me. Yeah. People are investing in you. Right. Not your balance sheet. Right. And, and because that's, if you know if if it doesn't go exactly as planned, is people flee the hills, or you know, or or are you only a star if it's you know you're you're hitting all your targets, you know, like? But what happened about? Because you know when you see someone and you believe in them, yeah. and you think, well, yeah, I'm I'm in it for for the long haul. Like I know this person can do it. You know, yeah. I, I like that idea of trying to attract that type of investment if you're gonna if you're gonna go that way. Hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah, that was good, man. I'm awesome. stoked, Dave. It's Greg. been a, an awesome uh, run. I think our uh, li- listeners know already that we do five, six of these a, um, a session. So. Yeah, and what a great way to end with Elisa just, you know, kind of inspiring thoughts and yep. and uh, and so candid in her description of what it's like to be you know, a female entrepreneur. I love that. Yeah, yeah. awesome. All right, man. Thank you. See you, Dave. See, See you, you next, next week. Thanks for checking out this episode of Boiling Point. Remember to rate and subscribe to us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Boiling Point Pod. To see more from Dave Vale, check out leadershipunleashed.ca or visioncoachinginc.com and on Twitter at Dave underscore Vale. And to catch up with Greg, visit Hemmingshouse.com and at Greg Hemmings on Twitter. Thanks for listening and remember, keep that pot boiling. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, 4Kids Flashback. 4Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at 4Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback.